Good evening and welcome to Starfest 2020, the St. Albert Readers Festival. And welcome to an evening that I already can tell you is going to be a wonderful evening. I'm Peter Midgley, the festival director and your host for the night. On behalf of Starfest, thank you for joining us. Before we introduce our guests, I do want to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations and Métis people. You can buy tonight's books at both in independent bookstores in Edmonton, Glass Books and Bookshop and Audrey's Books. Please visit the links that we have provided in the comments section and buy the books. I'll say it again, buy the books. After the introductions, our guests will speak for roughly 40 minutes, during which we invite you to please post comments and questions in the comments feature. If you're on YouTube, remember you have to log in to be able to comment. At the end of the evening, I will relay the questions to our guests and hopefully continue the conversation. So, tonight we have a very special guest in the studio with us tonight, Julia Sorensen. She is the current St. Albert Poet Laureate and is a published writer, musician and a visual artist. She will offer a brief performance as a response to reading Aslan's book and then introduce our guests for the night. Her performance is brought to us through a partnership between the St. Albert, St. Albert Public Library and the City of St. Albert. Julia, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for the like wonderful welcome and thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. Um, you don't often get to do performances nowadays, so any, any chance that I can get, I'd love to do that. I had a great time reading Aslan's book. Um, it was a wonderful pleasure, and I got to the end of it, and then I realized that it was um, sort of a fictionalized biography of Walter Benjamin, and I have studied some of his work, so I was like, oh my gosh, and I went back to it. And so this poem is um, a response to Aslan's book and also um, some of Benjamin's work. Um, so there's some nods to both uh, writers in there. The poem is called Lieber Walter, Dear Walter. In some time before the now, a fox flies down a steel rabbit hole to dodge someone's bullet. She is stopped by a pane of glass before she reaches the sea. In the hope that the pain is made of, the fox sees her reflection and misplaces herself. As suddenly as this hole is transformed into a trench from a stream, so too does the bullet's bronze barrel thrust itself through the steel opening to find the fox missing. The someone of the gun makes a mistake then, assuming that a threat to the present erases the possibility of the future. In some time other than now as well as the now, a fox learns to hide herself in someone's holdings. The same way that she makes their place unknown to them, she makes it unowned. And suddenly, you are only dreaming. She whispers your truth to you in your mother tongue through the veil of your sleep. She says, Es ist doch niemals ein Dokument der Kultur, ohne zugleich ein solches der Barbarei zu sein. Aber es kann ja anders werden. It can become otherwise. She then shows you her machination, so strong it can transform itself into the future, an image of that same someone reproduced into one who drops seeds instead of bombs from airplanes. In some time possible after the now, but that is not yet the now, the fox could again fly down the rusted square rabbit hole to dodge someone's blackened powder bullet. But between the now and this possible future, the pane of glass she landed on in the past can be made from a mirror into a portal. The Unterschied zwischen ein Spiegel und dieser Scheibe, the difference between a mirror and this pane, she whispers to you. Is das dadurch man die andere Seite sehen kann? Is that through it you can see the other side? Tired. You can see to her. 
and find hope in your pain that she is right. Thank you very much for listening to my poem. I loved writing it. I loved reading, reading the book. Um, I would like to now offer a brief introduction before I just pass it over entirely. So, Aslan Hunter is an award-winning author of seven highly acclaimed books. Her work has been adapted into music, dance, art, and film, including a feature film based on her novel, Stay. Her latest novel, The Certainties, as I've said, is destined to cause a stir. Hunter teaches creative writing and lives in Vancouver, BC. Tonight, Aslan will be in conversation with Thomas Trofimuk, an Edmonton writer who has four novels out in the world, the most recent of which is This Is All a Lie. Thank you very much. So I guess I guess it's uh, we're up. Okay. <laughs> what? Um, that was amazing. That was, oh my that, God. Was, that was beautiful. Just beautiful. So uh, Peter. Julia, so, marry me. Marry me. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. So, uh, Peter, uh, I, I have to put this on, right? I'm, yeah. I, no. I'm, I'm waiting for like yeah no yeah no. <laughs> Oh, he's telling me it doesn't really matter. Okay, that's my first failed joke. Hasn't. Um, <laughs> honest to God, I have not had any scotch yet. I haven't. Um, but there is some right here. Oh, my God, look what you brought. Okay, we're not going to talk about that. We're not talking about the bun wagon right now. Um, just let me give a brief overview of um, your book. And I'm, I mean, I could obviously describe it uh, on my own, but I want to read something that I found. I think it was on your publisher's website um, because these things kill me uh, um, and you'll see why. So uh, this is the certainties. In 1940, as the shadow of war lengthens over Europe, three mysterious travelers enter a village in Spain. Uh, they have the appearance of Parisian intellectuals with the trio of, of two men and a woman are starving and exhausted from crossing illegally through the Pyrenees. Their story, told over a period of 48 tense hours, is narrated by one of the men who slowly accepts his unthinkable fate. In, the, in a voice despairing and elegant, he calmly considers what he should do and weighs what any one life means. As he does so, his attention is caught by a five-year-old uh, five girl named Pia who wanders near his cafe table. To Pia, he begins to address all that he thinks feels in his final hours, envisioning a rich life for her that both reflect and contrast with his own. Flash forward, meanwhile, in the 1980s, a woman named Pia uh, seeks solitude on a remote island in the Atlantic where she works at an inn and reflects on her chaotic childhood. As Pia's story begins, a raging storm engulfs the island and a boat flounders offshore. Pia and her fellow islanders rush to help the past and the present calamities collide. By turns, Elgiatic, Elgi <laughs> Elgiac. Sorry, Elgiac, oh my God, I have that scotch. And heart pounding, a love letter in the guise of a song of despair. Uh, the Certainties is a moving and transformative blend of historical and speculative fiction, a novel that shows us what it means to bear witness and to attend to those who seek refuge past and present. Speculative fiction, let's go back to that one little phrase just for a second, because uh, for me, all fiction is speculative. Um, mm. and, and so that just seems like uh, silliness in there, but I love this I love this description and I love the book. So uh, uh, um, uh, Peter, thank you for asking me to uh, interview Aslan. Uh, um, I, I'm thrilled. Um, um, we have been going back and forth uh, for the past two weeks or a few weeks talking about uh, uh, teasing each other about our scotch preferences. So let's get that right out of the way. First thing um, I, 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 <laughs> I have a, um, uh, a Glen Morangy. Uh, I don't know if you can see it. And this beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, glass. It's uh, quite light. That it, it a very, it's a very light uh, uh, expression of this whiskey. And you brought I brought, yeah, Avalar Abuna, and this uh -huh. was, um, it's like Christmas pudding in your mouth, and um, the space side, uh, I know that you, Thomas, do not like the cast kind of, um, you know, this is cast in uh, Oloroso Sherry, so not for you, but uh, 
Yeah, this was a, a scotch my husband and I love so much. We actually named our dog Juniper. We gave her the middle name Abuna. So she's Juniper Abuna, named after the scotch baboon. Uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. I encourage everyone, Abalaur Abuna. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Okay, so now we've talked about scotch. And I'm drinking some, and feel free to join me because okay, uh, we're just uh, we're just going to ramble here. So, um, uh, my my, I'm okay. Just from the poem uh, that we heard, which was beautiful, by the way. Uh, um, I'm wondering about the fox, and now that wasn't one of the questions that I sent you ahead of time, but um, I'm not sure what my question would be. Maybe what the what is the deal with the fox? The fox that shows up on the um, on the island was definitely not supposed to be there. Um, and, and maybe that's a tie up here. I, I don't know. But talk about the fox. I mean, it was yeah, great. no, and yeah, no, no, the, uh, this is actually maybe the favorite question I've ever been asked. And, and uh, you know, amazing that my, uh, that Kelly who designed the cover of the certainties picked of everything, she picked the fox because I think it really is central to the project. Um, so two things, Julia, your poem was, astounding. I got teary-eyed. You totally got the thing about time, but also the fox is kind of a trickster animal, right? The, the idea, there's so many myths across different cultures about the fox unzipping her skin and coming out uh, in another form. So the fox has this kind of um, really interesting cultural um, mythology around her too. I'll use the feminine for the fox. But two things. One is that um, when I was doing some work as a poet in residence at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum at UBC, I asked them if I could spend a month writing poems about the specimens in the collection. So the deal was that I would set up shop in the museum and every day I could ask the curator for a different taxidermied animal. And then I would take that animal like a, a stuffed emperor penguin or a dead fox and I would get to spend the day with the specimen. And I would not only research the species, but I would research that animal. Like, where did they collect that animal? Who was that animal? What might life have been like for that animal? And I became really attached to foxes in that time. Now, in my family history, I am on my father's side, a cousin to um, Alice Monroe, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature and who is, of course, the most uh, precise and uh, coolly empathetic uh, short story writer, I think, in Canadian letters. And Alice Monroe, on that side of the family, we were both sheep farmers. And on Alice's side of the family, her father owned, um, he, he had a fox farm. And so as someone who's extremely sensitive to animals and who has made it part of my project as a human being to be extraordinarily empathetic to animal beings and to not um, treat animals as its, two of my projects in, in the certainties, even though it seems to be about human beings and war, um, one was to never it an animal and the other was to release the foxes from the fox farm to kind of undo some of my family history in terms of animal husbandry and uh, and to kind of reimagine a possibility for coexistence with animals. But that's like project line number 47, uh, I think. But you have found it, both of you, and uh, Julia especially, so gratitude. That's one of my favorite scenes in the book, actually, uh, and, and one of the most important scenes in the book because it helps us, it helps us come full circle. I don't want to give away anything, but... Um, uh, it does. It does bring it full circle in a sense. Um, uh, so fox. I mean, we can leave this, but fox is is fox related to coyote in in, in that it's tricky in that mythology. I think, okay. Yeah, I, I almost used the word trickster, but I didn't want to appropriate an indigenous relationship to the coyote right. or coyote. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I th I'm thinking more of like Japanese culture myths around. I've, I've read a lot of the cultural myths around. Uh, so in, in some myths, you know, the, the fox can unzip her skin and step out of the of the skin into into another form. And, um, you know, one of my I have three uh, animals, three dogs whom I live with. And one is very foxy and she has an imagination and she is quite wily. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I worry sometimes I'll be that person who like adopts a fox. Like if, if the writing thing doesn't work out, if the teaching gig doesn't work out, I'll just be on a farm somewhere with a bunch of pet foxes and like really long hair. 
and a lot of baggy t-shirts and jeans. Anyway, that's the alternate me. Okay. <laughs> and, and we'll be walk, watching for you walking down the street with your fox on a leaf. That, that, <laughs> right. would, be, that, that would be perfect. That would they're be perfect. Ex they're extraordinary animals. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's leave the foxes. Uh, um, we may come back to them. Um, because I'm interested in the inspiration of this book, uh, being a writer myself. I'm I'm uh, I'm curious about where the idea came from or the ideas. Uh, what was the spark? Uh, I mean, uh, sometimes uh, it's a line that'll spark me, or it's a piece of music, or it's a painting. Um, but I'm curious about you. Uh, what is it that? Uh, when is it that you know that that spark has the layers to become a bigger story? Is that a hard question? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's a great question, and and I'll answer it uh, like more honestly than normally I would, uh, on account of my love for you, faceless ah. audience. This is my <laughs> gift, um, uh, and I wish you had faces. And I'm sorry we can't be together. Um, yeah, you know what? I had an idea. I wanted to write a, a novel because I go back and forth between poetry and novels. So I wanted to write a novel that had a feeling or a tone of. Um, uh, isolation, anxiety, this is all pre-COVID, <laughs> and yet, um, isolation and anxiety and danger. So I was interested in those, those feelings. And I had an image in my idea. I've spent some time in Newfoundland, uh, and, I, and I have a great care for the, the landscape, uh, as, I, as I love Ireland, so there's similar things. And so I had an idea about a kind of coastal book with those feelings or tropes in them. And uh, and unusually for me, I discussed my novel idea with my writer friend, Helen Humphreys. So Helen is an amazing writer. I'm grateful to, to be friends with her. And normally I would never discuss a novel idea. Like it's just, you don't. It's because once it's out loud, then you practically don't have to write the book. You know, you're just like, oh, that was funner. It's more fun just telling it than, than actually doing the work. And so I but told people, Helen- uh, Sorry. Yeah, no, you tell me. Uh, no, actually, well, people ask me. They they will say, "So, what's what's your new book uh, about?" And I'll say, "Love, sex, death." Yeah, yeah I start talking. <laughs> Love, sex, death. So, sorry. Go on. So, no, no, I made the mistake. Like Helen and I did a thing where we told each other what we mm -hmm. thought our next books would be. And I respect Helen so much. Uh, she's an amazing writer. And Helen basically shook her head and said, "No, no." For these reasons, and uh, and amazing because it saved me writing a book that would have seemed, I think, like a year behind all the other books. You know what I mean? Like it was, it wasn't quite ahead of the zeitgeist. And so, so I thought, okay, well, let's take those feelings and let's apply them um, to something else. And I saw um, there there was an installation that an artist named Hugh Locke, H U G H Hugh Locke. Uh, Scottish artist was doing in various locations in the UK, and it was called For Those in Peril on the Sea, which is the British naval uh, song, so it's a sea shanty. And this ex uh, installation exhibition, he was taking boats and hanging them from like a church or a cathedral ceiling, so that when you were in this sacred space, you were looking up at the bottom of these boats, and they were boats that evoked for me the refugee crisis at the time, right? This was, you know, back six, seven years ago when, when so many of the boats were floundering and people were dying and the refugee crisis was really in the forefront of our, um, of the news and I think of our consciousness. And so for those in peril on the sea had these hanging boats and I thought that's what the refugee crisis is for many Canadians like me. We're living in our houses that are not falling in on us, hopefully. We're living in relatively safe times. Our country isn't at war. Our healthcare is free. You know, so for us, the refugee crisis, like looking at the bottom of a boat, it's an evocation. It's not a crisis. It's something we can almost be dreamy about. Like it's so out there. It's, it's otherworldly. And so I thought, I want to write about the refugee crisis because I don't want to be an ignorant observer. I want to spend time in that, but I don't want to appropriate the Syrian experience. Um, so I want to think about how do I write about being adrift? How do I write about exile um, without appropriating an experience that I can't do um, 
be honorable toward or do do justice by. And so for me as a, an academic, that's always to look to history. So I chose the exodus of 1940, which at the time was one of the largest sudden mass migrations in human history when the Nazis or the Germans were coming into Paris and everyone was fleeing uh, to the to the south of France. And that's why I set my novel there. Okay, that, that I mean, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant explanation. Um, uh, and for sure- <laughs> Helen said uh, well, no is the short answer. Well- <laughs> Helen said no. <laughs> so just let, me, just let me clarify. Uh, Helen said no to a book that you didn't write and pushed you inadvertently into the book that you did write. Yes. I would, I would like to read the book that you didn't write, uh, but that's just me. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, we didn't, we didn't really, uh, oh, come on. I feel like I'm on some debate and I'm pressing the president to ask a, uh, answer the, the goddamn question. Um, you really, really talk about. No, no flies on my no, head. No flies on the VP's head. Okay. We didn't really cover, uh, the spark. So was the spark that, uh, it, it was that, uh, the, the exhibit with the boats in the ceiling. We did cover the spark then. Okay. Yeah. Yep. No, no, to your, to your point, though, no. <laughs> yeah, but the real first spark, and, and I mean, I just speak uh, this way for other creatives in the room, because I think sometimes we don't even know what a spark is. It just happens. Mm -hmm. When I was doing my PhD on material culture theory, reading a lot of Heidegger, um, so PhD at the University of Edinburgh on resonant objects or beloved objects, and really looking at thing theory or material culture theory, every time I'd open up um, a book by Walter Benjamin, I literally felt like light was pouring out of it and I'd have to slam the closed. And I knew, I was like, God, there's something in Walter Benjamin. And if I go into it now, I'll never finish this PhD. Like it, honestly, it was like the book would open and light would pour out and I'd be like, nope, not now. And, uh, and I didn't know what that was, but I felt that the tug, the, the current of his thinking was so strong that I almost had to ignore him during my PhD. Just be like, superfluous, like, oh, Walter, that guy over there. So really, there was something about Walter Benjamin, who is a ghost figure behind my unnamed protagonist that, that I could, like, was pulling me long before I was talking to Helen. He was even in that idea, I think. So he was really the first thing. Perfect. Thank you. You've, you you answered my question. It's like it, like we're having our own debate. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I, so um, you have I, I I've obviously done some research on you, uh, uh, and I've looked at some of the things that you said about the book in other interviews and other contexts. Uh, you said that your husband Glenn helped with your book. That his knowledge of wine uh, gave you the details that you'd missed, and of course. Uh, um, I think the experiential uh, minutia that writers gather from being in the world and paying attention, uh, uh, it, that's, that's really important. And so you had a helper uh, um, in that aspect. Um, and I mean, I guess, of course, we, we steal from our lives, right? We steal from our lives as writers and our experiences. Um, uh, my wife, my daughter, my cat, uh, she was meowing <laughs> earlier. She was meowing earlier. Uh, they all wind up on my books. Or my stories in in some way, and uh, I'm not placing them entirely in there, but of course we we take elements of them. Um, so your husband is woven into the book, perhaps more so than your other books. Uh, and so my, I guess my question is, can you say more about that? I, I mean, I'd love to hear the story of your husband if you're if you're willing to share uh, what happened. Yeah, no, I love talking about I love talking about Glenn. Um, so for people who are unfamiliar with the, the story, um, I was married to 25, for 25 years to an amazing man named Glenn Hunter. And uh, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer when I was writing the book and died uh, before it was finished. And uh, he was amazing. He was a wine expert. So there's a lot of wine in the book. And he was, um, he only had a high school education. I like to say that because I think he was a genius and I think it's important to equate uh, intelligence and worldliness with a human quality that isn't just about education. I'm dumb as a tech and I have a PhD. So 
I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But, um, but yeah, so Glenn, Glenn could name the world and always, you know, we were together for so long. He was there for my first book. So always I'd be like, what's the thing called? That's the thing with the thing. And he would say, it's called this. And uh, I'd be like, what kind of architecture is this? Cause I'm writing, or, you know, how do the Victorians blah, blah, blah. And he seemed to have this endless kind of, of knowledge about the world. And um you know, when I was writing The Certainties, as Thomas was saying about his life, I think you're just in your dream world. And it's like there's a shelf right on either side of you when you're writing your book and you just pull things off the shelf and you're not thinking I'm taking that moment from my life. You're just pulling things off the shelf and you're thinking about the story. And uh, so there's this funny moment, you know, when Glenn was in hospice um, toward the end where I was reading to him from the beginning of the novel. And, and this is the scene that I know struck Thomas. There are a pair of swimmers that the protagonist is watching. It's right in the first few pages. And she's in a yellow swimming costume. And the, the, she and the male are swimming in this beautiful Spanish bay. And when I read it out loud to Glenn, Glenn said, Italy. And I remembered that when we had gone on this amazing trip to Italy, uh, we were on the Liguarian Sea and we hadn't brought bathing suits. So I had to buy this like really tacky, way too small yellow bikini off of the one woman who was smart enough to be a vendor for made in China bathing suits, selling them for like $35 Canadian, even though they only cost 35 cents. And so we went swimming in this bay and I had this like yellow bikini that looked like something out of the Flintstones. It was horrible, but we were having this beautiful swim. And so I gave my protagonist or not my protagonist. I gave the, the swimmers through my protagonist's eye. I gave her a yellow swimming costume and Glenn said, the Liguarian Sea. And I said, yes. And so I realized that of course that was on the shelf. And um, so not only was he pulled off the shelf in terms of the things that we've done in our lives in the most happiest and innocuous times but um you know glenn was on a lot of morphine at the end and my protagonist at one point is taking morphine so i gave glenn's hallucinations to my protagonist because that's the kind of hallucination that morphine brings you and um yeah i'd, I'd say the the most crucial scene in the book is the most personal memory you know it's of um a day in italy and the meaning of love and as Glenn was dying in his, his very last minutes, I was speaking about this to him. And, and it's, um, it's in the book. And so what's amazing to me about this artifact of this book, and, and amazingly, my friends, people who love Glenn, Glenn's mother said, I saw that you gave someone in the novel Glenn's birthmark. And I thought, oh, God, only Glenn's mom and I and any ex-girlfriends with really great memories would know <laughs> that, that, that that was his birthmark. That I gave, And I don't even remember consciously giving Glenn's birthmark. Yeah. I think I was just trying to shove as much of my amazing husband into the book as I could. So, yeah, so he's he's everywhere in this book. And, and it's both a it's a victory, but it's also a grief. Right. So it has all those all those yeah. elements in it. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, let's uh, let's talk about that image just a bit more, um, because I noticed something in it uh, uh, about, uh, about that it could be not a metaphor but a symbol or a way of being uh, in a relationship or as a couple uh, or in a marriage that this couple who swam individually and then they come together and they connect and then they swim apart and they're always keeping an eye on, on each other. Um, uh, I, 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 maybe you don't have to respond at all, and maybe I don't really have a question, but it's just something I noticed and I loved about this book is that um, uh, we, we talk about bearing witness, and, and I know that we're going to, we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit more about that later. Uh, um, but this couple is a prime example of bearing witness to each other's lives, even in a small act of just swimming, going for a swim. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'm looking at, I'm looking at. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Do sure. go your thing. Go. Sure. I'm looking Gosh. at Peter go. and I'm thinking uh, this might be a good moment uh, for uh, a reading. I'd love to hear you read from the book. If you have oh. something prepared, I hope that doesn't come as a surprise. It case. does come as a little surprise, oh, but okay. I love surprises. And as, you're yeah, reading, yeah. as you're reading, I will have some scotch and uh, just enjoy yeah. listening to you read. 
Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I have like um, a little section that has wine in it, which is not Ooh. very scotchy. So you might have a little um, moment. So uh, this is my uh, protagonist at the very beginning. Actually, I'll just read from the very start. This is the easiest. And then a tiny bit of the wine. Mm -hmm. This is from the very beginning, my friends. I stand on my hotel balcony and look to the ski. Sorry, I'll go again. I stand on my hotel balcony and look to the sea and to the sky's unbridled light. On the beach below, the gulls thrash and squawk. A vagrant scrounges for cigarette stubs. As I watch him, the same thought circles. When we are dead, we will not know our nations. The vagrant crouches in his baggy trousers, sweeps the pebbles with the side of his hand, and pockets what he finds there. His hair is thin and patchy, and he scratches at it frequently. For an hour, I've watched him tread barefoot back and forth across the short stretch of beach. His feet have given me ample pause as I've been up since dawn, trying to decide if I'd prefer to die with my shoes on or off. Sometime around seven, the hotel keeper dropped a breakfast tray outside my door. I can imagine the ants I saw on the ground floor of the hotel tipping their antennae toward the heel of bread and drizzle of oil. The old woman is long past apologizing for the weak tea or the size of the rations. Her sort is one we keep encountering, wary of us of what trouble we might bring, even as she stuffs the crumpled pesetas we give her into a tin. The breeze coming in off the sea is warm and fresh. Already in the morning light, a man and a woman with skin still sun-kissed from summer wade out into the bay. She's wearing a bright yellow swimming costume, her dark hair tied in a plait. Behind them, a sailboat lulls gently in the harbor, as if the world were not in tatters, as if this were simply another September day. Further out again, past the twin points of the headland, a merchant ship steams south heading toward Barcelona, or perhaps as far as Tangier. My death in front of me as I stand here, as palpable as that boat cutting through the water. Thank you. Uh, we didn't get oh, to the wine, but we got the swimming costume. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, we, might, we might ask you for a little, another little section later, uh, but I do want to... Uh, Something I noticed as you were reading is the beat of your prose. And I'm just wondering, uh, we're going to talk about prose stuff in a minute, because I know lots of people out there in the invisible world uh, watching, I hope, uh, are interested in process. But uh, I'm wondering if you uh, read your stuff out loud before, you, before it's done. Yeah. Is that part of it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I definitely read a lot out loud. And I feel like as a poet novelist, I feel like a lot of my word choice is sometimes dictated by sound. You know what I mean? I, and I think the rhythm of my reading is to actually play up to the beats and the rhythms and the half rhyme that, that goes into the work. I remember when I was writing my last novel, The World Before Us, which is totally set in Britain. Everybody is a British character. Remember my husband drifting past the study and then stopping and coming back and he said, you're reading in an English accent. You know that, right? And I thought, oh my God, I've written this whole novel with a fake English accent. That's appalling, right? But everyone was British, so of course I would. Yeah, so I do, I read out loud a lot and I feel like um, I feel like my readings, even when I read poetry, I feel like I overemphasize sometimes, like, you know, that great debate about, Yates said, if I'm writing a poem, I've took it, taken a lot of time to make line breaks. I'm going to read it like a poem. And, uh, and I feel like I, maybe I over-poeticized my fiction, but the, the rhythm is, I think it can create a strong sense of emotion when you have those echoes of sound, especially in a book that's about echoes and reflections, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously the beat came through um, beautifully in what you read, and I didn't hear any overemphasis at all. Um, but, but I mean, I, I mean, as as a fellow writer, I think it's important that uh, that we work on that beat because um, when people read our work, 
it's usually not out loud, but there's something in the mind that picks up on that beat regardless. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think I'd be, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And uh, I'm not surprised at all that you do a lot of uh, reading out loud. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about, I know if you, I don't know if anybody's asked you this question or not, but um, I'm, I'm working on a book right now uh, where a mirror reflected in a mirror and the infinity of mirrors uh, between those two objects um, uh, plays a huge part in, in the book. In the certainties, there are a heck of a lot of mirrors. Um, so uh, maybe just talk about mirrors. But uh, why are they there? Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, one of the reasons that my protagonist is not named is because he isn't quite Walter Benjamin. He's yeah. like a composite character of Walter Benjamin, Heidegger, whose philosophy I love, even though his personal history is problematic. Um, John Ruskin, whose ideas about Gothic I love. Um, Rilke, who is the first poet I fell in love with. So I have kind of a composite character where I borrowed from different people. And my mentor in real life um, was the Irish writer Dermot Healy. Have you heard of Dermot Healy, Thomas? You can say no. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, but don't ask me to uh, go any further than that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Dermot to me, Roddy Doyle said Roddy Doyle said he was like Ireland's greatest novelist. I think he is um, one of the best writers of his generation for certain. And he was he was an um, amazing man. And one time when I was a young impressionable uh, writer, I was at Dermot's house. Uh, he and his wife Helen lived in Sligo on the sea, like on this cliff overlooking the sea, and Dermot. Uh, had a mirror over one of the, I think it was like over a, a coal fireplace. And he said, I think about mirrors a lot. And he said, I like to write about mirrors. And he he spoke just a little bit about it. And I, I was young. I mean, I was just like impressed by everything. I was like, I'm on the sea. The man has the donkey. There's a coal fireplace. I was just so excited to be worthy of the time of my mentor. And um and his family and to be invited into into that circle and uh, but i remember thinking okay mirrors think more about mirrors and in his work there is a little bit of mirrors and so i think for me dermot died um probably five years ago now and um that was my first death it was the first death in my life where i felt gutted by the no moreness of that um guidance, wisdom, attention, care, love, what, whatever those things are that go into the mentor relationship. And so I think as an homage, I wanted to think a lot about mirrors. And so the Narcissus myth, which kind of runs through the novel, is about the reflecting pool. And, um, and so, yeah, I wanted to use the mirror partly because I, I think that we're at a time in society where we are becoming so individual and so isolated in our technologies in COVID, but even before COVID. And I feel like com community, you know, my grief therapist, I say to him, uh, he's an amazing man. And, I, and I've said to him, I said, Ian, I know I just need to pull my bootstraps up and be okay with being alone in my grief and be, be, get my shit together. And he's like, no, no, Aslan, it's relationships. We live in a we live in relation constantly with other people. So this idea of going off and getting your personal shit together so you can be better in relationships, that's not how it works. We're always in relation. And um, and it's a it's a good reminder because I think we're in a, I mean, I teach 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds. And I think that we have this idea of self-sufficiency and 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 like going and being in private with our anxieties and our concerns when really being with each other in all the states of existence uh, is so important. And so I think I was trying to use the mirrors to talk about how Pia, who's the secondary or the second protagonist in my novel, how Pia and my protagonists see each other through mirrors. It's like it's, the mirror isn't just a venue for seeing yourself and understanding yourself. It's also a way to see through yourself into what characteristics you share with other human beings, right? That yep. we're in it together and the mirror yep. is that, it can be a vehicle for that. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. But uh, let's segue. Let's back <laughs> too up. Too much let's, information. No, no. Let's that was beautiful. Too much information that was beautiful. with um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's back up. The mother, the mother, the protagonist's mother, 
sitting in front of a mirror. And she tells this terrible, terrible story about the Tays, about her, how her father fell off the roof, saw a doppelganger of himself, waved at it, fell off the roof and died to a child. And the child was horrified. Um, you know, I, I flagged it. I've actually turned it down in the book. I, I, sorry, I, I, I do that to books. I'll turn down the pages now. Yeah, it's good. I, right in your book. It means that I love the book. Um, I, I love that moment in the book. Um, can you just talk about a little bit about the taze? Uh, I mean, of course, I went and looked it up because uh, it's a new word to me, and uh, I, I found definitions that said it means dampness, moistness, humidity, uh, and softness, smoothness, or tenderness. And it also means the remains or the relics or the ruins. Um, and of course, a doppelganger, a ghostly doppelganger. So where did that come from? Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, no. And I love that you picked that out because I, I felt, I think when I was writing the book, it felt like the Irish me indulging myself <laughs> and by making the um, by making there be an Irish lineage in, in W, my protagonist in his um, lineage. So yeah, it is like an Irish doppelganger. It's also called a fetch. So a yes. fetch is like a version of yourself um, mm -hmm. that, that you might see. Um, so my name in, in Irish means dream or vision. And then Ashling, which is how you would say my name in Irish, it's an Irish name, and, and the phonetics don't match the 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 letters in in Anglo uh, dialect. But an Ashling is a dream or a vision, and it's also a kind of poem. So you might have an Ashling appear to you as the kind of vision. And so the thing about Irish culture, as I understand it, through my you know deep heritage back to the famine, we came a long time ago, but also from living in Ireland. Is that you know that 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 in the same way that we're starting to understand indigenous cultures through the promotion finally of indigenous stories and we're understanding that our worldview is not the definitive worldview, the Irish worldview also involves a lot of interplay with a kind of um, if we say mythical, magical, or otherworldly, I think it diminishes it. I think that's a colonial way of mm -hmm. describing things that we don't understand. But there's an interface, I think, in, in a lot of um, old cultures. There's an interface with a world that is not visible in the same way that our, our world um, is visible. And so I think this idea of the appearance of the self to the self resides in a lot of um, old cultures. And, and the, that, the fetch can come as a warning uh, to warn you. So that's one version uh, of the fetch. But the way that I was thinking about it, I did this philosophical experiment once and I don't want to send anyone down a dark path so if you're going to undertake this do it with some um, some caution so I, I read a book on 101 philosophical experiments and one experiment is that you close your eyes and you start calling your own name and if you keep it up with your eyes closed for 45 minutes this happens you eventually become both the called like the caller who's calling, Ashling, 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 and the called. And you can almost create like a psychosomatic split of yourself through this repetition of saying your own name into a dark void. So you get this fetch apprehension. And because I was writing a novel that was thinking about the split self, trauma divides us, right? Trauma can create a schism. Romeo Dallier talked about this in a, in a talk I saw, which influenced the novel, where he said, as a man, you, you know, a soldier in particular, you can walk into a room and come out a different person. Like you can have a, a psychic split in that time. And so for and, me, the fact seemed like... One of your characters actually had that in the book, right? Yeah. Uh, and he recognized yeah. when it happened. So the, yeah, beautiful. Sorry, sorry, keep going. Yeah. No, no. I, I was just going to say, so So part of the work, I think, of the novelist, and you know this, and part of the work of the poet, is that you seize on your theme and you find all the ways that you can gently show that to the reader without writing an essay about it, you know? So it, so for me, the the fetch or, or the um, taste was just another example of this, the way that in the West, we're so obsessed with our deep ontology of our singularity. I, mm -hmm. me, deep in my heart, I feel, I, the singularity. And I think I just wanted to explode that idea of the individual who's not in relation in as many ways as I could. And of course, uh, 
when we think about the Tays, when we think about looking out into the world and seeing ourselves, I'm describing a mirror again. I just circled around the mirrors again. So, I mean, I, and I love what you said. Um, we do create ripples. We, we have that theme and we want to, we want to deliver it ge as gently as possible, or, or sometimes not gently, but and let it ripple throughout the novel, right? And, and, uh, and that's the work, that's the work we do. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm looking at Peter now. I'm going, I'm, I'm just gonna hold up a finger if we're okay for time. How are we sitting for time? Hi, right Peter, now? you're amazing. We love we're you, good, Peter. We're good for time? Thank okay. you. Um, I do wanna talk a little bit about writing process, but uh, you know, there's a, I, have a, I have a question. Oh, systems administrator just uh, messaged me and said we're good. Um, okay, I, here's another scene I loved. <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe you'd uh, read this one to us, but it's the carpenters. And I, uh, yeah. the carpenters in this book uh, who are amused at the suggestion, and that they're obviously more than carpenters, they're, they're building beautiful, gorgeous chairs. Uh, they're amused at the suggestion that they would put their mark on a piece of furniture. To them, it, it, it's absurd. Uh, and and uh, this, beyond being one of the most beautifully quiet moments in your book, uh, reminded me of something I talk to my students about all the time, which is the fact that the goal for good writers, for great writers, is to get the hell out of the way of your story. And mm. um, I harp at them about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the fact that we never use a verb other than said or says to carry the dialogue because that's the writer sticking his nose in, uh, and, you know, said or says is also sticking your nose in, but it's quiet, very quiet. Um, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I love that scene. Um, it, it, resonated, it, it resonated with me. And so uh, I don't know if there's a question in there. There is no question in there. I don't know. What do you have? What do you want to say about that scene? Maybe. Did I lose her? I know. Oh, no, so no, no, I know. I'm totally screen, with you. I'm, I was being, <laughs> Thomas, I was being meditative. I was okay. being meditative. Sorry, you, um, you were frozen. No. Yeah, yeah. No, that's my, um, <laughs> it was, I was alive, but I was thinking. So I, I had that time effect. Um, yeah, no, you know what? I, I love that scene too. And, and I, again, sometimes you feel like these scenes are a risk to put in because they're developing theme more than they're developing the action, you know, of the book and and does again, I think the poet in me is is very concerned with with theme and I mean, I remember a review of my first novel that and it's like the kind of sentence that I that I hold with me when I'm worried about writing that kind of scene and I think it was um, the Globe and Mail and the and the the line was something like Hunter heaps ideas on you but the ideas are heaped so gently you don't even kind of kind of feel it. And so for me, that scene with the with the furniture making was, yeah, it was it was about trying to talk about replication and the signature of the individual. It's a little bit Ruskin's ideas. Uh, he was a British uh, art uh, critic, a cultural theorist. Um, and so for me, it was a little bit. And also, Glenn was a carpenter. He started out. Glenn could have built a house from scratch. Wow. So as much as I was talking about wine, I mean, not from air, like clearly he needed the trees, but um, he wasn't also a magician. But as much as I was wanting to talk about wine with him, you know, I was interested in, and so he contributed again to how would they, what would it look like if you were on this remote island by, you know, in the Atlantic and you're building furniture, what would the layout look like? So it's just, yeah, it's almost like, um, I picture it like an artwork, this kind of scene in kind of a golden light where these workmen are teaching the aspiring academic about philosophy. You yeah. know what I mean? He's yeah. the academic. Yeah. And here you have, you know, true tradesmen who are, um, you know, whose wives come and are sitting around this. And and I think the point of that scene is he says these men were comfortable, like the, the these men and their and the women even the English setter or the setter in the scene, they were comfortable in the world and he wasn't. And yeah. uh, and so I think, yeah, it's, it's just kind of also trying to take, when you have a protagonist who's an academic, sorry, I'll take my English setter's collar off. Um, when you have a, um, an academic who's a protagonist, it's also important to recognize all the places that knowledge comes from. And so I think that was 
part of part of this scene. And also like his questions were so naive. Like, is it important to you to put your yeah. own flair when you're making the piece of furniture for the person who's buying? And they're like, why would we waste our time putting ourselves in that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, so I think, I think that's cultures too, right? So your protagonist is coming in and he has one idea of the world. And for him, it's absurd not to sign your work. For them, it's absurd to sign their work. I, I thought it was a beautiful moment. We're running out of time. Uh, as an, but I, I do want to talk about one of the, uh, something that popped up in an interview said uh, that one of the main things you wanted readers to take away from the certainties was the idea that there's uh, much to be gained from really seeing others, mm. acting as a witness for others, and also in allowing ourselves to be seen, which like, I, I think you got my note. I was horrified at that idea. Uh, I, I think that's the hard one. At least that's the hard one for me. Um, so I, I don't know. Do we have a few minutes left. What do you mean by really being seen? I mean, uh, you're talking about compassion here. Yeah, I, I am talking about uh, compassion and I guess vulnerability. And um, you know, I'll just I'll say one anecdote. I was teaching in tandem with the work I was doing on bearing witness or writing as witness. Um, I taught a class on writing as witness uh, at Kwantlen Polytechnic University where I teach. It was a third year class on writing as witness. What does it mean to be a witness? How do we write yeah. about place, about animals, about events? How do we write as witnesses? And not in a journalistic way, in, in a creative way, in a, in a poem or in a, you know, a piece of, uh, of nonfiction. And um, my students at the time, 19, to, again, 19 to early 20s, they had a habit of when they felt uncomfortable, they would leave the room. And so I said, what if we just sat in our discomfort? What if we make a contract in this first class that when we see a graphic image, when we're triggered, when something happens, what if we sit in the room and feel okay about crying, about being upset, about being triggered? And what if we trust that the people in the room with us will make it a safe space? What if we stop leaving, you know? And so part of the thing that I think the project that that the theme of the book was undertaking, the plot is compelling. There are no funny parts. There's one funny part, but it's very short. It's only a paragraph. You're not reading it for humor. But part of the project of the theme, um, I think, was um, trying to talk about staying in the room as human beings, you and me, Thomas, you know, everyone. What if when we read the news, we don't just pretend that it didn't affect us? What if we allow it to affect us and we allow ourselves to be seen at work and with our friends being affected by the fact that, you know, things are not okay. The COVID is the perfect example. We're all walking around going, how are you? You know, instead of saying like, I am sad, I am struggling, you know, these are difficult times. So, so I think it's just a, it's a way to be closer to each other by, by, being more vulnerable and more compassionate. Those two words, exactly. I, uh, that's a really good place to stop. Uh, what if we stop leaving? Uh, but we are leaving uh, to take some questions. Yeah, Peter? <laughs> Sorry, I, that was a horrible Ironically. A horrible segue. Um, Ironically, so we're leaving. Been, this is, oh, I, I got more to talk to you about, but we're out of time. You know, uh, I, we'll be friends. We'll yes. be friends forever, Tom. Yes. <laughs> There is no easy way to break in over the internet. You know, in a live performance, I can go stand in front of the stage and yell at yeah. you and, yeah. and, and make myself visible. But there is no way of doing it here. So uh, questions. Yes, there was, uh, Aslan, there's a number of things that you have touched on. But Corey asks here, can you tell us more about the philosophers and philosophies that have influenced your writing? And just at a quick note, I mean, Heidegger, Benjamin, Rilke, Ruskin, I, just to name a few that have popped up here. Uh, do you want to talk a bit more about some of the others? Well, yeah, yeah. And I'll, I will try to be succinct. Um, you know who's really been influential? Heidegger hugely around being, right? And, but Heidegger was wrong about animals. Um, mm -hmm. But other than that, Heidegger knew what he was talking about. But Derrida, uh, Jacques Derrida, who is very difficult to read. He's, he wrote in French. I only understand him if I read him first thing in the morning before coffee. Um, but Derrida, what he does is he breaks apart the binary. So he says, if we take absence and presence and we say, 
that those things are not ultimates. And we say there's an absent presence or a present absence. Um, so he takes apart binary positions and um, he's been a huge influence in terms of, of how I think through life, um, but also in terms of what I was trying to do with presence and absence uh, in this, in the certainties. So I, I totally recommend uh, Derrida in, in that way. All the white men, this is my last novel that's all about the white men, but still they do, they bring, uh, they have brought and do bring uh, some valuable principles to the table. Thank you, as I will, yes, Derrida is a very interesting one there. Uh, now, I actually want you to expand on something that's a question from me is you were talking about, uh, we talk about mythical and magical when we want to talk about things we, don't understand and being colonialist view. And I so agree with you on that. Uh, coming from a country where where the, the numinous is side by side and interwoven with the with the real our lived reality. Um, just want you to expand on that a little bit more in how you see it. Yeah, I, I feel like a student in that way. I feel like I'm still learning. But I know, you know, moving to Ireland at 17 and then living in, in Scotland. And again, these are my heritage countries. I'm, I have my Irish side left during the famine and my Scottish side has been in Canada for 200 years. So, so these are my deep historical um you know, compass points. But um, even those cultures, when you get into the deep literature, the, the you know, writing um, that has been around for a long time, the oral traditions, I, I think that, that they weren't pragmatic like we were. Uh, you know what I mean? I think that mm -hmm. there wasn't, I think, you know, this is way outside of my wheelhouse, but I will say that, that I'm beginning to really understand the damage capitalism has done to our imaginative existence has done to my imaginative uh, existence and the world of even how our, our metaphors, our deep metaphors and our transactional uh, way of living has affected this, the kind of world of, of wonder. I love that you said the word numinous. So these, these unknown edges, right, where things, and, and, you know, I think what the certainties was trying to do was create a space of imagination. So, you know, there are two ways to read the novel ultimately in the end, and I won't give those away. I think, I think I like to write a book where the writer gets what they need from the book rather than what I think the, the reader needs. So yeah. I think with the certainties, you can understand it one way, and that's as valid as understanding it in the second way. Um, but, but I think that creating that kind of liminal space where a book can work in two directions, which I've done twice now, maybe even with all three novels, I think that kind of way where the reader gets to claim something is to say that this this kind of um, the finite, obdurate, certain world that we live in, I mean, The Certainties is an ironic title. Um, so I, I, th I think it's my way of, of pointing to that, that dream world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all dream. You know, why are we paying less attention? Why is that the thing that happens at night that doesn't count for anything? You know, why is our imaginative life the thing that distracts us from our day job. Um, so I, I think I'm trying to call back that, that the value of reading the world through those spaces. I hope I'm trying to do that. Oh, thank you. I think you, you are. <laughs> you, oh, absolutely you are. Uh, and um, Indra says here, Aslan, you are so inspiring and your kind heart and compassion and wisdom are truly moving. I can't wait to read the book especially now that you've shared your influences and inspiration. And um, I think, yes, that definitely goes on. And that's probably a good place to say thank you so much. Yeah, Thomas, we'll start with you. Thank you for a wonderful thank interview. You. I could feel right from the beginning it was going to be a, a, just a wonderful conversation. So we're, thank we're you. We're not going to stop talking. We're going to keep talking. <laughs> good. You won't, you won't see it. <laughs> So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we'll see you're in Edmonton. We will see you around for sure. And Aslan, thank you so much. You've been absolutely wonderful from our first correspondence through to this. It's been absolutely wonderful. 
hope to see you in uh, in Edmonton and St. Albert soon. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks. Peter. Thank you, Julia. Julia. I will pass that on to her. <laughs> And as we Thank close you. off the evening's event, just a reminder to you all, please, uh, you can purchase the books online at Edmonton's independent bookstores, Glass Bookshop and Audrey's Books. Please follow the links in the comments section, buy the books. We need authors to buy books. We need the survival of bookshops. So please do that for us. And then thank you again to the Starfest team who've been, uh, tech team who've been fighting very valiantly with the internet this evening on a Friday night. So <laughs> thank you for that, for making this happen. And um, on the final note, please do visit us online at starfest.ca. Look at the other authors that are coming to visit, register for the shows, enjoy them. And with that, I'll say thank you all and good night.